believe that your personal life and your professional life are inherently linked. And when you do the work on both sides, you can become the most successful version of yourself. This is a place where wisdom meets leadership, where success meets spirituality. Welcome to Do the Work with Denise Love Hewitt. I'm sitting here with Tony Revolori. Tony and I met at the wedding of a mutual friend. Yes. Our friend told me he was an actor. And my assumption, which is why we never assume, was that he was just <laughs> trying to make it as a young actor. Uh-huh. It's common thread in the city of Los Angeles. 100%. And and he's not fr- wrong. He's not wrong. <laughs> I am trying to make it. And then our friend said, no, Denise, he's in Spider-Man. And well. I was mortified. <laughs> I was extremely mortified. Uh, <laughs> only for me to realize later, I'd obviously seen some of your work. I've seen Dope. Yes. Seen the Grand Budapest Hotel. I'm sure many other things you've been in. Well. Probably. Maybe. Um, but Tony's a true talent. He's a kind and generous person, a very talented actor. He's young but old, grounded, but free. And I've loved learning from him and laughing with him. Tony, thank you for being here. I think we're just about at our one year anniversary of friendship. That's right, yeah. There's a few people in my life where I feel this, where you meet them and you instantly connect and it was something that I knew wasn't just, we weren't just friends for the weekend. I knew this person was going to be in my life and that's a testament to your heart, but to your wisdom. Um, Thank you. It is true. And his- Likewise. And I, so I want to get, this is actually something I don't know about you that I sort of want to talk about. How did you start acting? So I've been doing it for 22 years now. I was maybe... And how old are you now? Just I'm, I'm 24. <laughs> <laughs> so for just context. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was about to get into that, but I love it. You jumped the gun. <laughs> um, I, I, my, so the, the, the story starts with my father. He was walking down the streets in LA looking for a job and a director of a commercial stopped him, grabbed him and said, be in my commercial. You have the perfect look. He had no idea like what was going on, anything, but he spent the day doing this commercial and it was the Spanish version and my dad caught the bug, had no idea how to join or infiltrate or anything. So uh, went to the library because back in those days he used the library and uh, the internet connection there. Researched and finally my brother and I, I was I was two when I started and he just put us and took us out to baby commercials. I think the first thing I ever did was a Gerber commercial. I've not been able to find it, but apparently that's what it was with me and my older brother um and from there we just steadily kept going auditioning for more things getting you know agents headshots and all the things that you you have to do and you know usually people come in from out of state and they have to do at 18 21 whatever age they come i was doing at four years old or whatever what was one of the first things, I guess, when you had more consciousness, right? Because obviously sure. when you're doing it this young, you're just sort of doing it and it seems fun and mm-hmm. um, there's not a lot of probably analysis. Uh, what was the first thing you did that you were sort of like, oh, I'm an actor or, oh, I feel like I'm making it. Can you take us through maybe one of those moments? I don't think it was a I made it moment. I think it was more so I'm doing this and it's a job. It was the first time I started to not enjoy what I was doing. And that's when I realized it was a job and I must've been nine or eight. And I booked this movie with my brother called the perfect game. 
directed by William Deere, the guy who did Angels in the Outfield and Sandlot. And it was this baseball movie about a Mexican Little League team um, that went very poor, won the championship. Pitcher was the only pitcher to ever pitch a perfect game in Little League. It was so much drama and so much infighting. I had to fly to South Carolina to train for four weeks with an actual professional baseball team. This was something that is serious, that people aren't just doing it and I can just walk up and do what I want to do and be fine with it. And as that movie actually got canceled and then remade three years later with the same actors, I was 12. And at that point I realized, okay, I didn't like doing it the first time, but now that I'm older and I didn't have that, I know I need this and I want this. And that's when I decided this is my nine to five job. I am working every day from... 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. to make sure I'm doing whatever I can to push myself to be successful. And, you know, having that mentality at 12 years old is a little jarring. And of course, it's not very steady, but, you know, I had it every now and then. And that was good. And that's why I think uh, I am where I am now. Yeah. But I think it's interesting to say that you sort of grew up acting. You didn't have a lot of agency in that choice. No. So for you to hit this sort of critical point where you're like, I want to do this. Yeah, I will say, I mean, to to your point of of not having a choice, I wouldn't say that because my dad was very, and both my parents were very free in what I wanted to do. My dad used to say, you can do anything you want in the world. If you want to be a janitor, you be a janitor, but you're going to be the best damn janitor you can be. That's just the kind of mentality he had. So he put us in music, uh, acting, sports was our main goal when we were younger. Um, My brother and I both tried out for the U.S. men's national team when we were very, very young. I think my brother was 14 and they let me try out because he was a star. But I never had any illusions that I could actually go pro while on, on my brother's hand, they were grooming him to be a myriad of injuries, sadly. Ended that, but I had a lot of different avenues I could have gone. But to me, acting was always the one that felt like my calling. And so, like, I could do this to the best of my abilities. And I'm, that's what I ended up going for, even though I still tried my hands at other things because... I feel like everyone's always like, you got to do one thing and do it great. It's like, well, yes, but you can do one thing, do it great, and then do like three other things okay and see what happens there as well. People are very linear and we like to put people in boxes. And I I think that obviously I do a multitude of things. And I think that's, you know, you should always pursue and see other things that are you find interesting. I'm sure even speaking of boxes, I'm sure as an actor... Mm-hmm. What's frustrating for you? And this is this is where actually I say this a lot. Venture capital and Hollywood are the same business, the same yes. business. Being an entrepreneur and being an actor, you deal with the same amount of rejection. Right. A lot sure. of it is not up to you. A lot of it is waiting to get picked. A Absolutely. lot of it is. Do I fit the archetype of what you're looking for? Do I fit the visual representation with the director? Who do I know and how well is that connection? Yeah. Um, so I'm sure as an actor, that's a, a sort of frustrating mm-hmm. space to navigate. So can you take us first sort of what it's like? Just sort of, I'm sure, I don't know if you've been put in a box or if you feel that way. Yeah. How do you deal with that? I mean, yeah, I think every actor has been put in a box. There's no way you you aren't. You look at an actor like Bradley Cooper. 
where he was playing the romantic leads in every movie. He didn't want to keep doing that. Then moved on to be uh, the douchebags in both Wedding Crasher and Hangover and all this stuff. And then he didn't want to do that anymore. So what did he do? He went and he started creating his own things. And for myself, I have definitely, especially as a person of color, been put into very tight-knit box. And it's been extremely difficult to break out of it. And sometimes you got to scream at people. You got to burn bridges to make a difference. And that's the sad truth with where we're at, where if I educate someone on the way that they're acting, on the way that they're treating me, of course, that's going to come and reflect poorly on me because he has all the connections and everything. So it's just about finding the people to surround yourself with who are able to do that, as well as working hard to, you know, get yourself out of that box. I've been in the sidekick, best friend, token brown dude box for basically all my life. And it's been an extremely difficult thing to break out of. And I realize I'm not going to be able to break out of it unless I myself make something else for me to be in, to let people see me in a different light. And that's what I've been doing. You know, I've been actively writing, actively producing, actively creating and figuring out behind the scenes what I can do to maneuver myself into a position I want to be. And again, you get a lot of rejections. You get a lot of a lot of bullshit answers. And it's it's really disheartening. But again, and it's a ridiculous movie, but it's a great saying in the Rocky movies. He says it's not about how hard you get hit. It's about how hard you get hit and stand back up. And honestly, I've been hit real hard a lot. But every time I stand right back up, I surround myself with the right people that I need to be surrounding myself with. And I keep going. That's when you know you really want to be an actor because it's such a brutal business in terms of just like there's yeah. physical judgment. There's your talent judgment. There's all these other things that come at you. Like a lot of them, it's like this is just I can't change this thing about me. This is just how I look. And it's dangerous and destructive in a lot of ways. And I mean, I felt that way, you know, just in venture capital, pitching hundreds and hundreds of investors and just getting yeah. lambasted, not for on merit of idea, but that, that we don't fit or we don't have the exact metric they're looking for to make an investment and all this stuff that's very arbitrary at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And I will say, looking back now, I feel like there was a at the time when I was moving through it, I didn't really have the ability to acknowledge the pain. Like I was sort of just moving through and getting rejected. I was like, okay, next, next, mm -hmm. next, next, next. And as I sort of taken a step back, I realized that there's a lot of pain. Like there's a price to rejection. Absolutely. Because I mean, you're still in it. So like, how sure. do you deal with that? I think this is less so about acting in terms of pain and anger and things like that. And it's something more that I've self-reflected through years of well, self-reflection. And I genuinely think, and a lot of people used to tell me, oh man, you never get angry. You never do this. And you bottle things up or whatever. And it's not about bottling things up. People think there's only two options, bottling things up or exploding right then and there. But there's the third and most healthiest option, letting things go. And I have learned to let things go. Do things still make me angry? Absolutely. When I go out to an audition and I do my best and I hear back, you know, hey, they thought you were just too exotic looking. Oh, I've gotten that about five different times. Have you explained to everyone that's racist? <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. Five years ago, when I'm calling these people out, who am I, first and foremost, and two, 
They're not going to listen to me. And this is the way the system goes. And no one wanted to change it. Now, thankfully, if they said something like that and I called them out, they're wrong. They become self-reflective, hopefully. So, yeah, to me, I've learned to let a lot of things go. There are moments where I can get angry where something like that happens and then it gets casted. And it's an actor who is very, very pale. You know, it angers me. But then I learn tomorrow is tomorrow and why am I going to stay wallowing about this? Let me move on to the next thing. If this is done, this is done. There are moments also where you can fight for something, where they say something like that, but you got to keep going. You got to hammer through respectfully, of course, but you got to keep going. You take the answer you get and it's also a learning privilege. You can ask, why did you say no? And maybe it's your fault. Maybe your project isn't good. Maybe you didn't audition. Maybe your product isn't the best or there's a way to pitch it better. So it's, it doesn't hurt to ask. It never hurts to ask. But yeah, I just I figure out how to let things go and also care a little less about what I'm going in to do. I'm very passionate about my own things, but care a little bit less when when you're walking into a room. I think that's a really important thing is that. Oftentimes when we're really attached to outcome or the idea of something, Mm -hmm. right, we let ourselves sort of let this thing cling to us. Mm -hmm. And what I've been really, even when I started scripted, a lot of my thought process was, this is not the last thing I'm going to do with my life. This is one of many. How do I create space between me and the work? Who I am, I am not, I am, my identity is not my work. Right. And so it's a hard process to do, especially when you like probably go in for a movie that you really, really want. And, but it's like creating that space allows possibility, but it also allows you to understand pieces of this are not personal. Absolutely. 100%. I mean, none of it should feel personal. These are, sometimes they can be, sometimes people are that way, but if you let it hold on to you, there was a recent example, I'm not going to name names, but a certain thing happened where I was looking for something um, and many different people came in. The one specific person that I was hoping would reach out did not. I was very angry. I was very disappointed and I was very sad. In my mind, that happened first. Second thought was then, well, you know what? I'm going to prove them wrong. I'm going to be great and they're going to regret it. But then here's the thing. there. Even if I'm, I make it to the highest level of any case, they're not going to care. These people don't care regardless. And they're not going to care. And it's not a personal attack on you. They just made this decision. Move on. And the second I did, I, again, felt happy again. I don't need to wallow or think I'm going to get you back or hold a grudge in any way. And again, I think those things are dangerous. And I also don't seek my own validation from their approval or my work or whatever. Again, it's what you're talking about, that separation of person and work. I do not seek validation from either my work and or other people which is an extremely difficult thing to do. And I don't think it's wrong to seek validation from work in any way, shape or form. But I think it becomes a dangerous thing to only seek validation from these things. And again, that's part of the I don't care. The And it's, it's less I don't care because it sounds aggressive. It's, it's more so it will not affect me because I won't let it. 
seeking validation, albeit not bad, can be dangerous from the wrong people or the wrong product or whatever. Well, what I think is interesting, and I'm just drawing a parallel here, mm-hmm. I may, it may not be accurate for you, but I felt that when I had such consistent rejection from <laughs> externally, right? Yeah. The thing I was building wasn't quite, people didn't quite understand it, just sort of who I am. I'm sort of counterculture to begin with. Mm-hmm. I stopped ascribing value to external validators because they did not necessarily mean something for my journey. And I learned to find validation in myself, right? And I think that that's a really hard place to get to because a lot Absolutely. of people are chasing the the good review, the the award, this thing and that thing. And as both you and I know, the deeper you get into it, the more you realize there's just layers of <laughs> politics where none of it really means anything. Yeah. And so you stop being like, okay, well, it doesn't matter because the reality is the right opportunities will be yours. And I think that's sort of what I have found in my career. And certainly you can speak to sort of your journey, but you seem to work consistently with certain people and there's a level that, that the right opportunities are finding you. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think patience is a big, big benefit and being patient, but still working hard and understanding that it will come as long as you keep doing the work. And it's a very difficult thing. And I'm not saying everyone can do this. I'm thankfully at the place where I can be patient and wait for the right job that will take me to the right place or down the path or something I want to do while even in acting. Uh, And it's happened to me before. I've taken jobs for the money because it pays my rent, because it pays my mom's rent, because it pays for food, for whatever, my little brother going to school, um, new clothes, whatever it may be. And not everyone has that luxury. So I understand that that's a perspective thing. But again, as long as you work hard and as long as you are patient and understanding, it took me six, 14 years to get the movie that finally gave me a career. That's 14 years. If, if you're putting that in perspective of obviously I started at two, so by 16 I had it, which is still young. But if I started at 18 years of age, then 14 years later is 32 I think that's important, though, because a lot of people that start their acting careers in their 20s or they leave college, they start yeah. start auditioning. It takes a really long time. And part of that is because there is a relationship building with the industry, getting mm-hmm. to know casting directors, having them feel like they can vouch for you. Yeah. There's also a piece where it's like the right role hasn't come for you. And some people, it's like, you know, they turn 40 and that's when they break. And I think it's really important to remember that we're all on our own journey in our own time. Mm-hmm. And we tend to have like an obsession with youth. But I think that what we're seeing now with the, just the, the sheer amount of content yeah. is that that's sort of dissipating. It's really like there's so much content. We need so many different types of roles. And we're obviously expanding, not fast enough, but expanding the representation lens yeah. of Hollywood. Yeah. Um, and so I think people just need to like remember that, that it's not it's not like it's a marathon. And I think that's a it's really hard thing when you, you know, you're doing the compare despair dance where your friends are killing it and you're like, why am I still, you know, here? And then you're like, but, but it's like, that's because you're only in competition with yourself. 100%. So you talked about your family. I did. You're very close with your family. And I love, there's a few people in my life in showbiz that like have these very beautiful, tight knit families. And I'd love to just hear about that because obviously this business can do one of two things. It can make you closer to the people that are, that are in your life and, or it can, you know, sort of separate you from them. And so what is it about in your family, the thread that you believe has kept you guys so close and growing together? I mean, I don't know. I think it's maybe more of a cultural thing being 
Latinx. It's just kind of the way we grow up, where family is important. Blood means more than anything. And you get instilled those values. And then having a family who are fantastic, who are great, and who I fight with, obviously, but not much, makes it easy to be close to them. You know, again, another thing is financial values. Mine is yours, yours is mine. We share as well as none of us here grew up with a lot of money. I mean, we lost our house in the bubble crisis in 2008, I think, or whatever, and and we were homeless for a bit. That is something that also, I think, forces families together much closer. When I was finally getting any modicum of success, I wasn't thinking, well, great, now I can buy a Rolex, go live by myself, get myself a Tesla, pull up to the club, get myself a bottle, and thump, thump, thump all night. I was thinking, great, I should save this money. Mom needs a new car. Brother needs a new car seat. We all need new clothes. We should get in a bigger apartment. Okay, I finally saved enough. Now let's buy a house altogether. To me, my life hasn't been separate from them for any time in my life yet, besides when I go to shoot a movie or whatever. I shared a bedroom with my older brother till I was 19 and he was 20. You know, that's just kind of how it went. So I think I had no choice to be close to my family, and I also do love them. You know, I I am fortunate enough to have amazing people outside of whether they were my family or not, they are amazing people that I would probably have in my life. So I think that's what those two things are, are why I'm very close to my family. Well, I have sort of a loaded, like it's a twofold question. So yeah. it has to do with your family, but also, so there's something about you that's always like very grounded. Like you have an awareness and empathy and kindness and generosity that like most people in the early twenties, they're not thinking this way. Mm-hmm. And they're certainly like, if you start making some money, you, I'm not sure everyone would still have the grace and the thoughtfulness to take care of everyone around them. Where do you think, like, why you're aware of that? Like, like is it past life stuff? Like an inner knowing where you just sort of know, know these things at a very young age? Like, I think, I think it comes from the idea of growing up in a certain type of neighborhood and being a person of color because you see that also in a lot of Latinx, Black communities, rappers taking care of their friends, you know, that is a very prevalent thing. They always take care of the people around them. And I think that is something that comes from not growing up with money, then having it and wanting to enjoy it. While I can say from experiences with friends who have grown up with money, their ideas of knowing how to save, doing this, it's not only just the knowledge, but the that is the normal for them. That is what is expected for them to do while for us it is expected to take care of family and everything if you haven't seen the movie the farewell uh directed by lulu wang and starring aquafina there's a great quote in it and i think this makes sense a lot to uh, our experiences as people of color and immigrants in america One of, I believe, Aquafina's character's mother is telling her, you have an American viewpoint. You think in me, 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 me. I, how do I save? How can you give me money so I can go off? How can I build my career? How can I do that? While in different cultures, especially 
people of color, we don't have that. We think family. How do we all rise together? It is not about the individual. It is about all of us. So if I succeed, how do I make my brother succeed? How do I make my uncle succeed? How do I make my you know, cousin succeed, my mother succeed. And that I think is a great big difference for how our mentalities go and how we view not only family, but how our finances go. I think that's a really good point. And I think I'm going to take it a little further. Mm -hmm. So my mom grew up in Trinidad. My -hmm. grandma was in a prisoner of war camp during the Holocaust. So they left Europe. She actually went, my grandpa actually went to go live with her family in Venezuela, which is where they had escaped to. Right. And then they fell in love and then they moved to Trinidad and then they, all their kids were born and raised there. So they were there for the duration of my mom's youth. Mm-hmm. And then they came to the States. My mom came to the States. My dad's American. And I think that there's a very specific mentality when it comes to America that is, it's a, it prioritizes the individual over the collective, right? Which I think we're seeing some of the failings of that in real time. And a big instilling for me, and I don't know if it's an immigrant thing or a non-American thing, Mm -hmm. but there's a big mentality of, at least in my house, was like a lot of empathy. A lot of uh, manners were very, very important Mm -hmm. and being kind and taking care of each other. Right. Like, I think that that was a very big thing. So even though, you know, in my family, we definitely celebrated everyone's individual professional journeys, which Mm -hmm. means none of us live in the same place, but there's still like I call my mom every day, right? There's still a connected yeah. and a thread, which is, or, you know, I help my brother with his company sometimes, right? Like Amazing. there's that that thread of, are you okay? Are you feeling held? Are you feeling seen? What do you need? That's really important. And I think that's probably a, a grounding principle as well, right. or has at least helped you sort of navigate this. No, 100%. And that's not to say I haven't messed up or, you we know. All have. You know, I've made my mistakes. I've <laughs> paid far too much on, on things I probably shouldn't, but it, that's okay. You know, I am 24, but it doesn't matter about age. People make mistakes. You learn from the mistakes and you don't do them again. Or if you do them again, you do them smarter. So do you think partly like being on set from a very young age, also, do you feel like you matured faster than your peers? Yeah, I mean, usually and especially back in the day, you were the only kid on set because they'd only have one kid. And if you were lucky enough to have multiple kids, then, you know, that shoot was probably a nightmare. But no, being the one kid, you'd want to talk to the adults. You'd want to talk to whoever is there on set. So you'd learn to have a conversation and hold the conversation with them. And that was something that my dad was very, very amazing at in teaching us how to engage with someone even at an early age he said when when you say hi you say hi you stay there you shake the hands you say how are you doing you engage in a conversation if they don't want to go feel free to run and jump on the trampoline or break your arm or something but until that moment you're engaged with that person when you say hello and you're looking at them in the eye and shaking their hands or whatever it may be and unless you say excuse me or something like that you're in that conversation. So to me, that was always part of my family. And then bringing that to set, that became, oh, he's always an old soul. He's always this. And then, of course, figuring out. I mean, I was on huge sets by the time I was 16. And at that point, I really had to grow up, you know. 
I did, as you mentioned earlier, the Grand Budapest Hotel with literally 37 different Oscar nominees. <laughs> and not intimidating at all. Not, no, not at all. And there I am, you know, shitting bricks, being like, I have to be on my best behavior. And of course, we're having th- these lavish dinners every night with Jude Law sitting across from you, speaking to Ray Fiennes and Jeff Goldblum and Jason Schwartzman and Bill Murray. And they're talking about the movies they want to see. All these crazy things and you absorb it. Even if I wasn't a part of these conversations, you absorb it because you want to be a part of them and you think, okay, the next time they talk about this, I'm going to do my research and I'm going to get it. So maybe that's just a me thing, but I think that happens often when you're a young person on set with a lot of older, not only actors, but people. I think they say that being a great actor is also listening. That's true. Also, being a great husband. Yeah, Yeah. that's really the takeaway. Um, Just shut up and listen, men. So as you were sort of on these larger sets, when you came back from from shooting, did you ever feel like disconnected from some of your peers? Did you ever feel like your work was, you know, I had instances because I was very work oriented at a young age where I had friends that were like, okay, like you're working so much. Like, why can't you just go out? Why can't you just come to a party? Mm -hmm. And it caused some tension between some some of my friends and I because I was in a different place than they were. And, you know, life life ebbs and flows. But was that something that you dealt with? I never really had friends. Uh, (laughs) That's just the truth. No, it's not not a problem. We just never had friends. It's not. It wasn't a non-issue. No, I mean, even when I went to school, I mean, I had schoolyard friends and everything, but none of them came over. We never did sleepovers. None of them really hung out other than school because I was... Three times a week, driving up to L.A. from Anaheim, going on three different auditions that day, coming back, doing my homework. So I never really had friends. They never understood it. They were never angry about it. But, you know, I never had that person that was my best friend because no one ever understood what I was going through, again, other than my family. So my cousins were my best friends or my brother because they understood whether they were doing it or not. They were in it no matter what. They were coming over regardless. We would talk about our different experiences. And then around like 18 is when I really started kind of going out on auditions by myself. I'm an adult now. I'm driving. And I started making friends at auditions, actually engaging and going out. And they understood my relationship with work and we're okay being second to that. And, you know, of course it kept growing. And now obviously I have a a great appreciation to my friends and I have a great work-life balance and I know how to. Now he's very, he's very popular now. I, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say I'm popular. I mean, we had been in the same room about, I don't know, three or four times and we never met. I know. So that's I true. I want to say. I was also DJing. So you were in also, my defense, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was not in a conversational space true. or pro- approachable space. As I'm learning, I'm not very approachable <laughs> when I DJ or so I'm told. Right. So. But I think to me, I, I, again, I wouldn't say popular, but I, I you know, I, I have my friends and again, figuring out that work-life balance is extremely important. Um, and I've definitely burned myself out really hard, horribly to the point I have 102 fever for three weeks because I have worked every day nonstop for three years straight and it's bad. So again, that is extremely important to take those breaks. It's so important. Your body will tell you when you're doing too much. I cannot emphasize enough. You, it's 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 a marathon. Not a sprint. You're writing a lot. Writing a lot. Yeah. 
and it's been fun. Recently signed with a new agency, and we've been going out with everything, and that's been nice. So hopefully, let's knock on wood that something happens, but it's been really nice. I've been feeling very inspired and creative, and I feel like my voice has never been as loud in terms of people actually listening, people wanting to listen, not only to what I'm saying, but the stories I want to tell. So I'm finding it very interesting to navigate that. There are still a lot of companies who, again, are coming with the bullshit excuses, but that's okay. It just takes one because in the words of Lady Gaga, there can be a hundred people in the room and it only takes one. Can I just talk about that for a second? Because I have a lot of empathy for that because, or sympathy, because everyone was like, oh, you know, cutting all her interviews up. And it's like the reality is you're getting asked the same question at every single press junket. So you create a canned bit. It's like a comedian. I have have a 15 minute stand up (laughs) bit. This is what it is. These are the jokes, right? This is my canned response. And so I fell for her because I was like, I would have done the same thing. I would have had a canned response because you're asking me the same question. 100%. And I, I've done it, been in those junket rooms, and literally the same five questions are asked a hundred times that same day, and you give the same answer. Right. Because you can't. So I have complete sympathy for her, but it is also really funny. Yeah. Because here's, here's the trick with that. You say the same things in a different way. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, I had so much fun. The cast and I did this, blah, 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 so-and-so-and-so. Oh, answered. Then the next person comes in. It's like, you know what's funny is the cast and I did a lot of things. Like, you know, we did this, blah, 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 blah. And I had a lot of fun. And then you play games with it, you know? Right. But you're an actor. Sure. She's, but so is she. She was nominated for an Oscar, I believe. No, she's very talented, but I think she's probably used to the music questions. Maybe the acting questions were new for her. Sure. Um, I mean, <laughs> I enjoyed it. I think that the supercut was a bit mean, but I... I think it's funny. I think if, if people are laughing at it with no malintention, yeah. it's completely fine. The second people are like, oh my God, how dare she do it? It's like, no, shut up. No, I, that's why I wanted to give the context to it because I digress because it's actually come across my brain multiple times where I'm like, but people don't understand she's getting asked the same thing oh, all the time. Um, so for those that aren't in the business, that's really what happens and it's really <laughs> tedious. But I want to go back to your writing. What I love about yeah. you writing and telling your stories is that Writing, I think sometimes as an actor, people come to it a little bit later, but it's so important to have more control over where your yeah. career goes. And it makes me really excited because I want to hear your voice. I want to hear your stories. And so I'm excited to sort of see those come to fruition. Yeah, I think it's extremely important. And if you can, you know, if anyone's listening to this, just start doing it. Even if it's a short film, that'll go nowhere. Just do it. And, and you're going to improve and improve, and get better and better. Because let's be honest, you're probably going to be bad. I know I was. I tried writing a feature when I was 15, recently reread that. It was a piece of shit. Horrible. Okay, you tried. But that's my point. And I learned a lot. I knew I could do it. I had that confidence. And now I'm writing more and more and more. And I'm smarter about it. I know my industry a lot more. And you also don't know where it leads, because for me, when I was a producer, I wrote a pilot because I wasn't producing things I was passionate about. Mm-hmm. 
And that journey of understanding what it is to write something, talking with writers and seeing all the inefficacies in Hollywood mm -hmm. is what led me to start my company. And so the point is, even if it's not, you're not an actor, or you don't want to be a writer. It's like, follow the journey because you don't know where it's going to take you. Absolutely. And that exercise brought me to the next sort of like juncture in my career. Absolutely. I could write something and none of it gets made, but it'll lead me to someone being like, I love this. Great. I want you to write this. Fantastic. Right. Right. Or actually, I like this. I never thought of you as a writer, but you know what? Why don't you write this and act in this? Why don't you direct this? Why don't you do this? You never know where anything's going to lead you, but just enjoy it. And that's the amount of control that actors can have is through writing, producing, directing. So do it. And you might not be, you might find, oh, directing is definitely not what I want to do, but it doesn't matter. You find someone who's going to direct your short film for you if you want to star in it or whatever it may be. But I think with like the music industry is a huge, it shows you that really no one needs to go into a big studio to do these things anymore. There's a guy with his laptop sitting in his mom's basement making the track of the summer. Yeah, I used to date a very big music producer, and in his apartment, his closet was the sound booth. Yeah. And he makes number one hits, right? Um, exactly. The point is we have all the tools is really what yeah. we're getting to. The one thing with acting is you need extra people, because if you're going to shoot that, you can't do it yourself. We have all the tools. You can make friends. You can recruit yes. people. Be become popular like Denise. <laughs> like Tony now. Oh, no, no. I mean, look, we're sitting in this amazingly huge room and you got 15 people behind you. You got 15 people behind me and they're all your friends. You know, I love you putting that into the universe as what, what this will be soon. 100%. I appreciate you. We're going to jump into our rapid fire section. Okay. So it's five questions. We ask the yes. same one to everyone. No. So get ready. Okay. What would you tell your 20 year old self at 24? <laughs> uh, I would tell him, one, the girl you were dating, not worth it. Don't don't use that vacation. Um, I would tell him, be smart about what you're choosing to do. Three, save a little bit more. Four, enjoy the watches you're going to buy. Five, be courteous, be kind. And six, start writing. Wow. What we what I learned from that is that you like watches. Love watches. Okay, so that's for everyone to know. We want to get to Tony's heart. Get him a watch. Oh yeah, um, watches those, and cameras. <laughs> watches and cameras. That was a good. That was a good roundup for anyone in their twenties. Start saving. Uh, I think is a really good one. I think we would all tell ourselves that. One hundred percent. And and it doesn't have to be much. Just even if it's a hundred dollars every month, that'll build. If you can do more, do more. What's the last book you read? Well, I reread The Alchemist. So that was. The last book I read. It's one of my favorite books. It's amazing. I would love to be in the adap film adaptation of it. And I think that book is extremely, extremely truthful in the fact that, you know, when you're young or when you're starting something, everything kind of clicks slowly, but then it gets harder and harder and people always drop off and you gotta, you gotta keep going. You know, I, I had a decade's worth of rejection, but I kept going. And I'm still getting another, I have two decades of rejection and I'm still going. So if you want to do this, if this is your heart, soul, and passion, keep going. Get ready for rejection. That too. <laughs> <laughs> what are you struggling with right now? 
it's a really interesting one because this will lead to a longer conversation, but I'll try to condense it down. The scope of identity for Latinx is a very strange topic because we can have Latinx people that look as dark as Morris Chestnut to as light as you. And Latinx community is ethnicity, not a race, but it is a very strange thing where you are not Latin enough. You are too American. You are too Latin. You are not American enough. And it's a strange thing living in this country, especially during all these amazing movements like BLM and everything the ACLU is doing. It's a very strange thing to be able to figure out not only what I want to say, but how I want to say it Uh, and using my platform to continue those voices and echo them strongly. I have read uh, White Fragility and Ta-Nehisi Coots Between the World and Me. And, you know, I'm just trying to educate myself as much as I can. Because obviously as a person of color, I know my experiences, but there are many different, many very similar, as well as uh, my, you know, female counterparts as not only white women, but women of color have a lot wildly different experiences. So I want to educate myself there to, you know, figure out how to not be a problem. I don't think I think that we're all dealing with that. I think sure. every single person is. But I think it's specifically to the Latinx community. I don't think you're alone in that. I've had a few conversations with my friends um, who are Latinx. And I think there's a, a conversation happening in that community about yeah. how to better show up for each other and sort of like, how do you want to talk about it? But I think that's, from what I hear, that's not, you're not alone in that, uh, in your community. Certainly we white people have to do a lot of work, but I think that's, that's great. I'm spending a lot of time deepening my work as well and reading and really trying to understand what language I can integrate into my being to be the least harmful I can be walking through space. So I love that. What's bringing you joy right now? What's bringing me joy? Time with my family, my cameras, my pool, putting solar panels on my house so that way I can be energy conscious. And uh, my work, my work is fulfilling me greatly and I'm enjoying every second of it. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Oh man, I, I, I have this question so loaded. I know exactly what it is. I was maybe seven, maybe eight. My mom was working at on Vineland, there's a hotel called The Garland. There's a restaurant there. My mom works there as a waitress. Tipper well. The Smother Brothers, if you know who they are, they were old school comedians uh, who then had a like live show where they would invite and interview musicians, actors, a late night show, but it was during the day. It was where the infamous explosion out of Keith Moon's uh, drum set and potentially deafened Pete Townsend. That's where that happened. And I met one of their brothers who I was a big fan of. He gave us the greatest piece of advice I will ever hear, which was, it was a lot of buildup and I'm apologizing. I keep doing it. So I'm going to just say it now in three, two, one. Treat everyone like they're the most important person in the world because yesterday they were, today they are, tomorrow they will be. And it was, it's a bit selfish when you think of it because it's like, okay, I'm treating this person well because of who he might be, who he will be. But when you really take into account what that is saying is you don't know who this person is next to you 
in any way, shape, or form. So treat them like the most important person in the world because they are. And I have taken that to heart. I treat everyone as kindly as I can because that's what stuck with me. You really do. You make everyone feel incredibly important when you're when you're with you. So I love that. That feels true to your being. So thank you for sharing that. Of course. I'm going to take us through some of our takeaways. Okay. So what I love that Tony talked about was that you need to write to not only expand your opportunities and options, but it's a way specifically as an actor to have a little bit more control over your journey. Let things go. Let things go. Tomorrow is tomorrow. I think that's really important. I think we definitely hold some things too tight. And when we, as my therapist once said, that when we're holding things too tightly, oftentimes we're not giving them the space to breathe, to come to fruition. And so having that space allows things to actually move, which brings us to space between you and the work. It's incredibly important for you to have that space so that you can be separate from outcome and still be fulfilled and happy regardless of what's happening in your work life. Do not look for external validation to validate yourself. Those are great if those things come, but really if you can find validation within your being, you'll be much better served when the hard stuff, good or bad, shows up. Family is everything. Family is important. And family can be the family you choose. We know there are a lot of not so great people in this world and they may be your family, but family is the family you choose. And thankfully my family is the family I chose, but your friends can be the family you chose. That's a beautiful distinction. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you, Tony, for being here. Your gift. Thank you all for listening. You can continue to listen and subscribe to Do The Work on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. It makes a huge difference if you can review, if you can share and rate this podcast. Thank you so much to Entertainment Speakers Bureau, to Angela, to Nichelle, to David, to Matt, to Smart Post Sound, Lenny for that musical intro, Lindsay for the graphics. I am forever in gratitude. I hope you all find and continue to live in your purpose. 